This is our sermon text for this afternoon. All right. It comes from Isaiah, who's a prophet. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, or this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and their faces upward, or turn their faces upward. And they will look toward to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in a darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, of them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy to the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot, the trampling warrior, and battle tumult, and every garment rolled into blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the governor shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wait, Joe, to come up and preach. Well, good afternoon. <clears throat> Aaron is uh, out of town, and um, I'm excited to be able to talk about this passage. It's been a blessing to myself. Um, so the, the title for, for this sermon is God's Astonishing Reversal. And um, we're going to jump into it in a minute. Next slide, Alex. For a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about Silent Nights, because I think it'll help us understand um, a main point in the passage. Uh, so there are obvious ways that we know as a church that Christmas has been turned into something that it's, been, that it's not, right? There's very obvious things that come to mind. Santa. It's not about Santa. Um, it's, a, it's turned into materialism and, and greed and many other things that we can obviously say, yeah, that's not what Christmas is about. Um, but there are some more subtle ways that Christmas has become something that it's not, even in, even in um, maybe our families or in our hearts. And so that's what I want to talk about. So let's analyze Silent Night. So a little bit about it. Um, Silent Night was originally written as a poem by a young priest, Joseph Moore, in Austria in 1816, so a long time ago, um, after 12 years of the Napoleonic Wars. These were brutal. Europe was just ravaged. Everyone's in poverty. Um, they finally ended, and he writes this poem to give hope to his congregation. It's performed for the first time on Christmas Eve in Austria as well, two years later, by a friend of his. 
And since then, it's been translated into over 300 languages. Um, it's, it's one of the most popular Christmas hymns of all time. Um, there's actually a crazy story where it was sung on the battlefield of World War I, and it was a cause for a, a temporary um, Christmas Eve ceasefire. Some really cool history. So let's just take a minute to analyze it. And what I'm basically making the case is that there's a right way and a wrong way to sing Silent Night. And there's a right way and a wrong way to celebrate Christmas. Okay? So let's just take a look at this first verse. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon, which means around. So all is calm and all is bright around the virgin mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Okay, let's, let's analyze it using incorrect logic. So Joseph and Mary have just traveled to an overcrowded Bethlehem. There's tons of people in Bethlehem on the night of Christmas. There's no room for them in the inn. They have to go out to a stable where there's likely animals, where it stinks. There's probably gross things in the stable. There's sounds. Mary gives birth. I don't think that's a silent endeavor. Um, there's probably a baby crying. I've heard that there's maybe a calm after birth, but that sounds brief. Um, there's shepherds then that show up because an angel came to them and they were terrified and told them something that was cool. And they, so they visited you in like your hospital setting. Like that night it sounds like. That sounds not calm. Um, okay, so that's that night. It doesn't sound calm. It doesn't sound silent. It doesn't sound peaceful. And around them, right, around them, not just that night, but they're living under Roman oppression. They're living under Jewish leader oppression. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've corrupted the temple practices. God hasn't spoken in 400 years. So the night itself, the night itself, was not calm. It was not silent. The world around them was not calm, was not silent. It was not full of brightness. So you're probably thinking, this is the worst Christmas sermon ever. You just blasphemed the most popular Christmas hymn of all times. We're going to come back to Silent Night, because there's a, a correct way to think about it. Um, so hear me out. But without a correct biblical understanding of Christmas, this is exactly what the world would have us think. Right? Think about it. What is Christmas? If it's not Santa, it's not materialism, but okay, at least it's a time that we can have calm, bright peace with one another. We can look past the darkness and the evil and the poverty in the world. We can join together in love and hope and positivity. In fact, this song has been attributed to have that exact message. I found this quote online from a terrible source, like not a reliable source, it's just on the internet, but the song's lightning medley and peaceful lyrics also reminds us of the universal sense of grace that transcends Christianity. 
and unites peoples across cultures and faiths. So, again, that's the wrong way to sing Silent Night. There is a correct way. This is obviously bad theology, but it at times can creep into our church and into our hearts. When we think about Christmas time, even Christians, I think, are tempted to think that it's time to look past hard things, to ignore, to just kind of hope for a good day uh, where we can eat really good food and give each other gifts and the kids have fun. We, we kind of have this ideal in our head of Christmas past, maybe. Um, it's cute, but it's not the message of Christmas. It's not the message of Christmas. And this is what Isaiah 9 has to say. So we'll circle back to Silent Night. We'll circle back to that idea. Let's dive into Isaiah 9. Next, thanks. So Isaiah 9 is, is also one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. It's quoted directly in several Christmas songs. Handel's Messiah, for one. Um, like, quoted directly. So it's, it's very famous, and we're going to dive into it. So the title I said is God's Astonishing Reversal. And here's, here's the main thrust of the passage, what I have to say, what, what it has to say, I think. Jesus enters our gloom, darkness, distress, and oppression to give us his glory and light and joy and peace. Gloom to glory, darkness to light, distress to joy, oppression to peace. If you look at it in your Bible, verse 6 is key. How is all of this possible? How do you have these reversals? Verse 6 is key. For, that word for is like because. How is this possible? For, this is why. To us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And we'll keep coming back to that. We'll keep coming back to that. So, Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. The passage is prophetic, right? And it's also poetic. So we need to put on some, some like, literature class hats and, and think about a couple things. So, it's prophecy, so he's preaching truth. Um, and it's also foretelling. It's telling about the future. So that's prophecy. It's poetic. So there's going to be word pictures. There's allegory. There's motifs. There's imaginative language. All this fancy stuff from high school. Think about a, a good movie. Think about a good movie that uses multiple timelines to tell a story. There's flashbacks. There's flash forwards. All to tell a story. That's what Isaiah is doing here. Okay, a little bit about Isaiah. So Isaiah prophesied to uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, right? This was in um, the Jews' history when there were two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. 700 years before Christ. So that's amazing. 700 years before Jesus comes, he's talking about it. Um, Israel is declining because Assyria is about to come in and exile them. Let's jump in. Next slide. So I'm going to break this into four parts. Gloom to glory is first. And it's all over the passage, but the verses on the screen to me capture this idea most. 
Gloom to glory. So gloom. Where do we see gloom? God's people in the time of Isaiah were living in terrible gloom. What did this look like? Well, on the screen, they were distressed and hungry. And it says that they will roam through the land. So when you think of roaming, we've got to use our, our fancy language literary hat. Roaming. They're roaming because they don't have any direction. They, they have decided to ignore God's word. And they're consulting mediums and spiritists. They're consulting the dead. This is, they've abandoned God. They're, they're looking around for that. And here, right? So it says they, um, they look upward, right? It says they roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Now, this is God's people. And they're cursing God, the only source of direction. And then they look towards the earth, and as you might expect, they only see distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they'll be thrust into utter darkness. And then in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, In the past, he humbled. So, in the past, again, humbled. So, I'm using this word gloom to also describe like being humbled. The opposite of gloom might be like bright, glorious, so the opposite of glory is humiliation. So they are gloomy. They are, they're humiliated. But then God's reversal. In verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were distressed. In the past, okay, so flashback. This is a flashback like in a movie. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. What's he talking about here? He's most likely talking about 2 Kings 15 and 2 Kings 17. Again, two nations, Israel and Judah, uh, Israel and Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And in Israel, we know from the Bible, king after king and leader after le leader did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they led the people to follow terrible idols, and do terrible things. Gloom. Zebulun and Naphtali are in the northern kingdom. Um, next slide. It's a little dark, but if you think about the two kingdoms, Zebulun and Naphtali are right around the Sea of Galilee and are in the northern kingdom. And in 2 Kings 15, 29, it says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured a bunch of cities and places, and it says, and Galilee, and all the land of Nephthali, and carried off the people to Israel, uh, to Assyria. So this is when God humbled the land of Nephthali and the land of uh, Zebulun. Thank you. He humbled them because they were not following him. He humbled them by taking them off into captivity. This happened during Isaiah's lifetime. So that's that flashback, right? In the past, he humbled Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the first to rebel against God and to feel the defeat of exile as a result of their sin. They had a land, they had a people, they had a kingdom and a king and autonomy, and now 
They have no land, no identity, no kingdom, no king, no freedom. Shame, dishonor, gloom. Back to Isaiah's timeline. So we were in a flashback. Now we're back to Isaiah's timeline. It says, in the past, he humbled them. And then it says, but in the future, he will honor, which is like to, glori- to glorify it, which is the opposite of shame and gloom. In the, in, the, in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So what does this mean? Jesus fulfills this prophecy. If you skip ahead to Matthew 4, 13 through 17, it says this, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. It literally says this, In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. How cool is this? God honors Galilee, Nephtali, Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea, by sending them Jesus, like early in his ministry. I mean, Nazareth is also up there in Galilee. That's where he's from. So the people in God's kingdom, the first to experience defeat and captivity and dishonor, the first, because of their sin, they were also the first to be honored by the coming of Jesus. What a reversal. This is astonishing on all accounts. I mean, there was a reason the northern kingdom was the first to experience exile. There was a good reason. They were the worst. Let's think about it to the for the Jew in Isaiah's day, right? They're in Judah, and they're thinking, um, yeah, they deserve it. They humiliated, they're being humiliated because they dishonored God. We're superior. We are Judah. We have Jerusalem. So yeah, they deserve it. But what? God's going to honor them in the future? The same kind of thinking would apply to the Jew in Jesus' day. Galilee of the nations? Why does it say Galilee of the nations? Well, Galilee was on the northern border of Israel. And it was likely a um, porous border. That's a John Piper word. Uh, porous meaning there was mixed, right? There were Jews and Gentiles um, all living together. And that's why it's called Galilee of the nations. Um, But to the Jew, right, in Jesus' day, they're like, Jerusalem is here. That's way out there in the religious boonies. Like those good-for-nothing hicks, religious hicks. But that's exactly where Jesus decides to honor, who Jesus decides to honor first. So it's astonishing that God honors this land and these people, Galilee of the nations, by sending Jesus to them. How does this apply to us through Christ? How does this apply to us through Christ? Well, we 
are really just like the land of Zebulun and Nephilim. We have dishonored God in the same ways that they did. We also deserve the gloom and the dishonor and the humiliation that they'd had. Right? Apart from Christ, we have abandoned God's instruction and testimony. We have also looked up at our God and cursed Him. That's what's in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4.3 So we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to that 2 Corinthians um, the last half of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. So if you want to leave a finger there in your Bible, go ahead. But um, 2 Corinthians 4.3 And even if our gospel is veiled, so veil, right? A veil covers, it discloses, or, or yeah, covers. Um, think about there's like gloom underneath the veil. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's who we are apart from Christ. Gloom. But in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, 16, so just before that it says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The next uh, Verse 18, and we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with an ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is this spirit. It has this picture of us being able to look up at God, and instead of cursing him, the veil is taken away, and we get to behold his glory, and then we become changed, and the glory just increases. How honoring that is to us. Though we should be like Zebulun and Nephthali living in the land of gloom. Gloom to glory. Okay, next, we're going to talk about darkness to light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone, has dawned. So gloom and darkness are similar, but they, they're also different. They're distinct in their meaning. So there are two Hebrew words for darkness used in this passage. One is choshek, which means destruction and death and sorrow, wickedness and evil. It's actually the same word used in Exodus 10 when the darkness plague comes to uh, Egypt, right? It, it says there's a darkness that can be felt. That's choshek. And then salmaveth, that's the second word. That has four biblical uses. Um, and this is what literally Blue Butter Bible says this. It said, here's the four biblical uses. Death shadow, death shadow, death shadow, and death shadow. You get it, right? Think about Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Deep darkness. We can see this darkness in the whole passage. But again, in, in chapter 8, verse 19, they're consulting mediums and spiritists. This is evil. This is darkness. They're consulting the dead. That's evil. That's darkness. They've abandoned God's word, which is a light into our feet and a lamp, uh, a light, lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Right? And it says they have no light of dawn. 
They're roaming throughout the land. We've already talked about that. They've looked up and cursed their only source of light. And looking down, yeah, all they see is fearful gloom and utter darkness. So this state of darkness applies to multiple timelines. Thinking about our timeline analogy again. To Isaiah's day, they have no light of dawn. It's, it, that's in present tense. That's the people of Israel right then and there. They have no light of dawn because they're rebelling against God. It's also meant to apply to a day shortly after Isaiah when they're thrust into utter darkness because of exile. They're going to be exiled. This is also meant to apply to Jesus' day because in Matthew, that's what it says. It says the people walking in darkness in Jesus' day have seen a great light, Jesus. Let's talk about God's reversal. How does God fulfill this? Um, well, it goes back to our key verse, chapter, uh, verse 6. How is this darkness turned to light? For to us a child is born. To us, the dark people, the people living in the land of darkness, because we deserve it. The people consulting the dead and cursing our God, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Jesus is the light of the world. And he didn't just shine a light like a light bulb down on us, the dark people. No, he came as a baby to walk in that thick darkness and shine himself. I love that word dawn, right? Dawn, that word dawn tells a story. It's more than just light. Dawn tells a story. It's like there was darkness and now there is light and it will grow. That's exactly what God does through Jesus, right? Jesus came on Christmas and he is dawned into our hearts. We have not seen the full light of day yet until the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord when we see his full glory dawn. So thinking about us again, how does Christ apply this to us? Well, apart from Christ, we live in utter darkness. We live in a dark world. Death shadow. We, we, cannot, um, we cannot be deceived by this idea of Christmas. It's just a time to overlook all those things. I feel like there's two different people on the topic of Christmas. There's people that have this like wishful thinking and um, they hope for a nice day, and they have these good memories of the past. Or there's people that it's really hard for, because Christmas is painful. I almost think the painful one's more accurate, because that's our world. But into that world, Christ has dawned. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Let's talk about Genesis made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because Christ entered our dark world and shone his light on that first Christmas, and because of the cross, he calls us out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.9 Okay, let's talk about oppression to peace. Thanks, Alex. So it's... Everywhere in the passage as well, but here's some verses that I think that just captured the most. Everything that we've talked about is oppressive. Darkness can be oppressive. Gloom is oppressive. So 
Chapter 9, verse 3, talks about Midian's defeat. Midian's defeat. So that was a day when they're, and a yoke that burdens them, a bar across their shoulders and the rod of the oppressor. So there's a yoke, like a yoke is like an animal with a weight on them and they're pulling something, oppression. A bar across their shoulders. Like think about slavery, like humans literally strapped together working, that's oppressive. The rod of the oppressor, someone maybe using a rod, oppression. It talks about, um, actually, so verse, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 talks about a government and a throne and a kingdom and reigning. And I was talking about Christ doing those things, but all those things can be oppressive. Government, apart from Christ, is oppressive, right? Taxes, um, bad rulers, bad government, um, corruption, oppression. Okay, so Israel is very, was very acquainted with this at this time, right? So it says, in the day of Midian, let's flash back to the day of Midian. This is talking about Judges 6 and 7. And it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because of the, and then because of the power of Midian was so oppressive. So, it, I mean, this is right there in Judges. Um, that word oppressive, that's how it describes Midian. So Midian came in and was oppressing Israel. And their oppression was so bad, they would come in, and they were like locusts. They would camp on their fields. So they're an agricultural society, they're planting things to live on, um, and they would camp right on the fields, ruin them all. So they had no food. The Midianites would kill all their livestock. It says they so impoverished the Israelites. They were in just absolute poverty. In fact, the Israelites would go, they would leave the cities and they would go, go they made made homes in the caves up in the mountains because of this oppression. Um, Let's talk about oppression in some other timelines. That's the day of Midian. In Isaiah's day, they're living under corrupt kings. Oppression, corrupt government. Same thing in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Rome's oppressing them. Religious leaders are oppressing them. There's tax collectors. Um, There's Jewish sellouts to Rome, right? All this oppression, oppression all around them. But God's reversal. It says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. So let's talk about how how was Midian defeated? Because it'll tell us about It'll teach us about how God defeats the oppression that we experience. So Judges 6, 14 through 15, an angel of the Lord is sent to Gideon. And Gideon says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. He is the weakest of the weak. And after some coaxing, he finally does obey. And he summons warriors from Manasseh and Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. It's the same region that we've been talking about. And guess what? 32,000 warriors show up. 32,000. The army of the Midianites is like countless. It, it literally says that their camels could not be counted. So we're talking like hundreds of thousands. So that does not seem like fair odds at all. Judges 7, 2 said... 
says this. God says this to Gideon. You have too many men for me to de- deliver Midian into your hands. 32,000 against, we'll say 100,000. You've got too many men for me to give them into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. God wants to ensure that he gets the glory. So Gideon has to whittle that group down to 300. That is a pathetic number. They don't have any weapons. They just have trumpets, empty jars with torches. It's actually this Jesse tree ornament. This is what this Jesse tree ornament is actually about. Think about how, for, so it says, for as in the day of Midian defeat, so Isaiah is telling us, think about how Midian was defeated and that oppression was defeated. It was by the weak, with way too few a number, no weapons, so that God alone gets the glory. In the end, they rout Midian. Midian is defeated. And the Israelites are very excited and they come to Gideon and they say, rule over us, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Ugh, even with 300 people, they're giving credit to Gideon. But Gideon told them, he says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. That's great. That is true. But that's not what happened. In the end, Gideon failed to fulfill his own words. and He, he had many wives He created an idol that led his people astray, and they returned to their ways after he died. But Isaiah picks this idea back up. It says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, right? The weakest, the most unexpected, astonishing reversal. Victory through weakness from God alone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given. And in the end, the Lord will rule over us. Not like Gideon. Jesus will rule over us. This is Christ, right? This is Christmas. This is the cross. God was born in total weakness, in human likeness, in a manger. He took on himself our oppression. Isaiah 53, like the same prophet later, Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. This is talking about Jesus. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He took on himself our oppression. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says, For to be sure, he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness. Just like Gideon defeating the Midianites. Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, but by God's power we live with him to serve you. 2 Corinthians 3, 16-17, the passage we keep coming back to. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A, 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 what's the opposite of a synonym? Uh, antonym! The antonym, an antonym to oppression is freedom, right? Right there in that passage. Another antonymy verse. 
Romans 6, 17 through 18, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, the oppression of sin that we deserve, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Later in this passage, it talks about how the government will be on his shoulders. So how does this apply to us in Christ? God shattered the yoke of sin that burdens and the bar across his shoulders. We were slaves to sin, but we were purchased by Christ so that we could be slaves of righteousness under his rule. He put the government on his shoulders, and he grants us peace. Distress to joy. This is the last section. Thanks. So where do we see distress in this passage? Well, all of these things can cause distress. What, what is distress? Distress is like you're stressed, you're um, sad, you're angry, you're just things are not going right, right? So it says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land, and when they are famished, so they're hungry, they're roaming, they're distressed, they're hungry. It says, and then they will look up towards uh, they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. This applies to Isaiah's timeline, right? His, the people then, they're experiencing distress. But God's reversal. Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing up the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, so God's reversal, distress to joy. So again, let's flash back to the day of Midian. Midian hemmed them in. Hemmed them in on all sides. They were displaced from their caves and they live in the mountains. A modern day picture of this are the people living in Gaza right now, right? They are hemmed in. They are stuck. Not only that, they had to be displaced from their, where they live in the north to the south. They are hemmed in. But God's reversal says, you have enlarged the nation. They have space to roam and run. They've given them, uh, God gave them freedom and the ability to roam. Um... Uh, God has increased their joy as people rejoice at the day of harvest. Again, Midian's oppression, they ruined all their crops. So think about seven years of Midian's oppression, you do not have harvest. We're, we're like really far away from an agricultural society living in the city, but like harvest time is a big deal because think about it, it's like, it's like payday, but like all at once. Payday, you know, every two weeks. Woo! But payday, think about it, coming once a year. That is something to be excited about. But they didn't have that for seven years. And then to talk about, you have increased your joy as people rejoice at the day of harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Again, seven years of Midian's oppression, they did not have victory. And then Gideon's victory, they had victory and plunder. So that's the joy that's offered to us. How does this apply to us in Christ? 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. through 10, It says that we are hard-pressed on every side. Hard-pressed. That's like 
distressed, we're hard-pressed. We also, right now, are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So we, this day of joy, it is dawned, it has started, but we, we don't experience it fully yet, right? The day of the Lord is coming, and we will be in heaven, and we will be with Christ, and our joy will be immeasurable, and we will have space to roam, and we will see the harvest that God has harvested um, from the nations. We'll see that harvest and the plunder that Christ won for us. It's exciting. So let's talk a little bit about application. You can go to the next slide, Alex. What does this all have to do with Christmas and me? Well, from this passage, we understand that Christmas is not about looking past or overlooking the darkness and the gloom, and the distress, and the oppression around us. We cannot sweep it under the rug. That cannot be our Christmas message. A correct understanding of Christmas must fully acknowledge the gloom, and the darkness, and the oppression, and distress around us. We cannot be deceived by Christmas. We live in a world that is full of gloom, and darkness, and death shadow. Oppression and distress. I mean, let's just think about this past year. Earthquakes. Thinking about Turkey. Elsewhere, too. Fires. Hawaii. Elsewhere. Humanitarian crisis. Multiple. Famines. Numerous genocides. Dysfunctional governments. Or just pure evil governments. Several wars. We cannot let the fake positivity of a secular Christmas in a wealthy country fool us. We live in a dark world. Let's just hover there for a little bit more. It's uncomfortable. Put yourself in the shoes of a Jew or a Palestinian right now, over the last couple of months. They're experiencing, I mean, they're experiencing everything we're talking about. Literal death shadow. How meaningless is a Christmas message that just says, look past all, over it all and just, just love one another, gather around around some food and some gifts. No! It makes you scream. But that's not our Christmas story. For unto us a child is born. And unto us a Savior is given. He was born into all of that. He experienced all of that. The light of the world. He took on himself that darkness and that gloom and that oppression and that distress and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. That's the world around us. Now let's think about our own hearts. A biblical celebration of Christmas must fully confront this gloom and darkness and oppression and distress that is in our hearts apart from Christ. Let's think about the world around us and in our own hearts. There's strife in families. 
There's disunity in churches. There's drama. There's accusations. There's investigations. I just went through one and it worked. It's terrible. There's death of loved ones. There are significant health issues. There's trauma. There's mental health. There's bad decisions. There's desperate need. There's intense oppression from the sin in our hearts every day. And frankly, we deserve it all. We are Zebulun and Nephthali. We deserve it all. But unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. It's a microcosm, a small picture of the gospel. In the most unexpected and astonishing way, Christ has entered our world to give us dawn. And his light is only growing in our hearts and in our community and in our churches until the day of Christ when he returns in full glory. Let's step back to Silent Night. That night and the world around that night was anything but calm and bright and peaceful, which means that the only way that it was silent and calm is because the Prince of Peace had come. The only reason it was bright is because the light of the world had come. The only reason anyone could sleep in heavenly peace is because heaven had come down to us. The true story of Christmas looks right at the evil, right at it, acknowledges it, enters into it, because that's what Christ did. In our gloomy, dark, oppressive, and distressing world, out there, and in our gloomy and dark, oppressive, and distressing hearts, we have light and joy and peace and, and glory. Why? For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. That's it. I'm going to pray. Jesus, we thank you that your life here on earth, your death and your resurrection is not just acute thought. It fully confronts, it fully acknowledges the darkness that we see in the world. That is, it is legitimate, it is weighty. We thank you that you have reversed what we owe, what, what we should be owed. We deserve all that terrible oppression and distress and darkness. We do not deserve your light, yet you give it to us freely as a gift. We thank you for the dawn that you offer us. In Jesus' name, amen.